It is February 2nd, 2014. Our message this morning is Four Prophet Prophets and the Great Prostitute. You know, before we get deeply into our message, we probably are to discuss the cancellation of tonight's event. We thought we might cater an affair here at the church, bring in TVs and watch the Super Bowl. You know, we might could get some fuzzies tacos, make some nacho cheese dip, and just bask in the glory of the world. Are you sure you prefer the presence of God to the super bowels? Are you sure? Listen. I have no idea. A bunch of lost people. The Philistines have gathered in the valley and they've set up champion against champion and it interests me not even a little bit. I prefer the presence of God to the presence of lost men. I prefer the glory of God to a glory that fades. Now there are churches here and there that may gather for a Super Bowl. And I'm not throwing stones at them. If you had nothing planned and you wanted to get together as a way to meet your neighbors or invite people in, then praise God. But shame on the man that cancels a meeting with God to go and meet with the glory of the world. I will not do it. So tonight at the Foundations meeting, we're going to discuss the revival presence of God. And I guarantee you, that's better than the halftime show. And there will be no wardrobe malfunctions. You know, if we're going to talk about the super bowels and talk about our nation, we probably ought to start in grammar school. Now, some of you are a little bit younger than others, but that's what we used to call grade school or primary school or K through fifth. That was grammar school. Because among the things that you were supposed to learn, LOL, was grammar. And among the first things that you learn in grammar are the parts of speech and the construction of a sentence. When you do that, you might say something like, I was speaking to you and he overheard. When you begin to take apart that sentence, you can see that I is the first person, you is the second person, and the third person is he, the one who overheard. This is basic to languages. In fact, a man like Baj that knows several languages has to figure this out quickly because in some languages, if you don't know this, you can't speak it. Christian grammar is just a little different than worldly grammar. In worldly grammar, we have I as first person, you as second person, and he as third person. But God is he, and he's got to be in the first position. The you are the other people, and they're in the second position. And the I is myself, and I'm in the last position. Amen? We need to learn to reevaluate our priorities. We got to go back to Christian grammar school. When Sunday church attendance drops because a bunch of people are playing with a pig's bladder, 
That's a sad day. And yet it is the state of things, is it not? Boy, the devil is subtle. Let us look at Matthew 6, 33 and see where the Bible places our priorities. This is one of those scriptures that has been twisted and contorted. It's rightly quoted and wrongly understood. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. But seek when? First. How could you cancel an appointment with God? An appointment to bask in the glory of the radiance of his son? To go and watch grown men play a child's game. Well, you do it when the kingdom is not first. The kingdom is a priority, but it is not the priority. This goes on all over our nation and it's possible because we're Americans. But if you were witnessing to an indigenous tribe in the Amazon basin and they skipped your church service so that they could go play with pigs, you would denounce them for it. It's time for us to evaluate where we actually are. And the good news is, saints, many are doing so well. But when the lights get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, sometimes your vision gets acclimated to darkness. And what we would like is to shine the bright light of God's word upon it. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's talk for a minute about spiritual migration. You know, Genesis 3.1 says that the serpent was more subtle, or NIV says more crafty than the other animals. This word... In Hebrew, has to do with a kind of premeditation, a kind of manipulation. It's a room. And if a room is used in a good way, then you're a prudent man. Someone who has thought and calculated and made wise decisions. If a room is used in a negative way, then it's cunning. It's calculating. It's scheming. Did Paul not tell us to be aware of the devil's schemes? All right, are y'all awake this morning? Did Paul tell us to be aware of the devil's schemes? What started in first century Judea as a body, as a fellowship of believers, got exported to the Greek world. And as it got exported to the Greek world, it became a philosophy. It's a subtle change. We start with a community of believers and we end up with a like-minded group of people who believe certain things. As it moved from the Greek world after the second and third century into a kind of Roman institution, the fourth century institutionalized Christianity. So what started as a body moved to a philosophy and ended up as an institution. By the fifth to the fifteenth century, a thousand years of darkness... The church had been transformed into an empire in medieval Europe. As we move to this continent after the Reformation in the 19th century, the church has become, in the 19th century, an educator. The first textbooks in our schools were Bibles. The first colleges in our nation were seminaries. As you moved into the 20th century, the educator became an entertainer. 
Nobody would listen if you weren't exciting. Let's go find new and exciting ways to share old truths. But we're not in the 19th or the 20th or the 1st or the 2nd century. Our century so far in these 14 years is marked by the church as an enterprise. The church has become a business. The church is franchised on every corner, just like McDonald's. Move people in, move people out, move money from their pockets to your plates. It's completely self-centered. The church has become consumer-oriented. When we think of this kind of spiritual migration, there was a book written in the 90s about the year 2000. It was written during the 90s, projecting the year 2000. It was called The Frog in the Kettle. A statistician named Barna wrote it. And he was noticing in all the years of his life that he had collected data, he was seeing small but incremental changes every year. And society was failing to acknowledge the changes because they were happening slowly. And he said, you know what? This is the same phenomenon that works with reptiles. If you throw a frog into a boiling pot of water, he jumps out, perceiving the danger to his life. But if you put him in lukewarm water and turn it up a degree every hour, he will sit there until he boils to death, never having perceived the danger. There's a spiritual migration that's been going on from Judea all the way to the 21st century. That spiritual migration has turned the body of Christ into an enterprise. Turn with me to Proverbs 23 and be in verse 4. Say there when you're there. Boy, boy. In Proverbs 23, here is verse 4. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. The holy word of God stands in direct opposition to the spiritual migration that has been occurring. Not only are we hearing a gospel that declares God wants you rich, it is the very fabric of our culture. We celebrate athletes on this particular Sunday, not just because they play well, but because they're rich for doing it. Would any of our children want to be the quarterbacks of either team if they were paupers? Would any of our young men want to grow up to be rap stars if they weren't paid to do it? See, money is the idolatry of America. And the pulpits have been silent because they love money as much as everyone else. You know, you need what your father has entrusted to you. And you don't need one other thing. The pagan world runs after such things. I refuse to chase it. Say, oh, pastor, are you saying be lazy? This cuts against the American heart. We don't want to hear that we're not supposed to weary ourselves to get rich because we value hard work, we say. And every TV commercial that you'll find is about less work for more money. So is it really hard work we value or is it 
the end result that we just want by any means necessary. See, the American dream is in stark contrast to God's promises for your life. We have had a kind of chubby checker scenario with our theologians. Chubby checker taught the Americans to do the twist. What a twist takes the gospel and says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well and turns it into seek the kingdom and you get everything the world has. A serious scripture twisting. Turn with me to Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Is this or is this not the word of God? And yet, nearly every book that is popular today, nearly every pastor who is popular today, includes in every sermon a substantial portion about God's blessings for the businesses in the church. As if the only reason a man with a business would come to a church is if God would bless that business. Do we serve God for secondary gain? Or do we serve Him for the excellency of His character, His greatness, His outstanding right arm? If He never did another thing for you in your life, would you still love Him? Or is your love for Him conditioned upon what you believe He will do for you in the future? How about Matthew 19? Let's find verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus said that it is hard, in fact, he says again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God then why could we want so badly to be rich and idolize those that are? I can think of a guy with a really strange haircut. He's famous from Manhattan. Theme song to a show used to be money, money, money. What's he famous for other than being rich? What's he famous for? Most people don't even know what business he's involved in. And if you do know that he's in the real estate business, have never been to any of his properties. You know what we know? We know he's got stuff and people want it. That's not what the kingdom is like. But you hear these for-profit prophets And they have presented the gospel in a way that says, if you make Jesus a footnote to your life, then the text of your life will read money, money, money. And I think they've turned the church into something other than what it was in Judea because I can't find anything remotely like that in Jesus' teachings. And you say, well, that's them. It's not us. Hang on with me for just a few moments. How about 1 Timothy 6? 
9 through 11. We're going to weed through some of the hard scriptures and see if we can make our point. Are you still with me this morning? I've already stepped on Super Bowl land money, so by the end of this, you probably want to shoot me. I'm not entirely opposed to money. I enjoyed very much playing poker with the guys the other night. There was a $10 buy-in and a $10 rebuy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't know what that means, then praise God. What it meant to me was $180 went to orphans. That's what it meant. 100% of the proceeds. I'm not opposed to people accumulating money if the accumulation of the money is for God's purposes. But how many men say, I'll accumulate it for God, and then it becomes for them? When we're not faithful over the small things, What makes us think we'll be faithful over more? I've been a pastor now a while. Do you know how many men in their 20s have told me God wants them to be successful in business because when they're successful in business, they'll fund ministry around the world. The problem is they weren't funding ministry with the money that they already had. It's near 100%. I mean, almost everybody that has ever told me that failed to be faithful with what God had already given them, but was sure that when God gave them more, they would be faithful with that. It's almost like saying, after I gets mines, what's left over, I give you, God. Is that what God is to us? We, we tip Jesus. We give Jesus our leftovers. Mm. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. What part of that makes you want to jump up and down and say, give me some? Do you believe it's true or not? I mean, do you? Because when you leave here, every radio advertisement, every billboard, every commercial... Every book is all going to be aimed at the same thing, tempting you with the lust of the eyes, with the pride of life. It's going to be saying, you can have this and that, and you can have them together, and after all, God wants you to. But Jesus said it's hard for the rich. I've known a few rich men who did it very well. And you know how you know a rich man who does it well? His pride is not in his things. And he's generous beyond description, but nobody would know it. You may never have met anybody like that because they're rare. They are rare. How about this one? 6, 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. I skipped the famous scripture about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil because you should know it. Here comes the 17th verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Does God want you to enjoy things? Does He provide you with things to enjoy? But when you want to get rich, you fall into a trap. You know, I worked for a company called UC Lending and I worked for them in the mid-90s. And UC Lending gave employees, after many years of service, employee stock options. And many people completely put their retirement in the employee stock options. 
It was trading the day that I got there for $58 a share. And people were so happy because they had been awarded them when they were worth far less. The problem is, is the day that I left there, they were worth 58 cents a share. Is wealth fleeting? The people that I've known that had the most money watched it daily. They cared for it. They nursed it. They had sleepless nights over it like it was a child. And in their investments, they felt as if they lost money when the market went down and they gained money when the market went up even though they never withdrew the money. They felt loss in gain that was not even tangible or real. It was a projection. And they lived vicariously through their investments. This is not the anti-money sermon as much as it may sound that way. The real issue at hand is our motivations. Could we look at 2 Peter 3.16? I want to revisit a topic with you for a moment. Scripture twisting. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter is writing about Paul. He said he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. What does Peter say about men who distort the scripture? They're ignorant and unstable. When you take a scripture like Matthew 6.33 that says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness... And these things will be given you as well. Obtaining the kingdom and his righteousness prepares you to have the other things that you need that go along with it. But to take this and turn it into a hook and bait, if you accept Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. If you accept Jesus, you will become better looking. If you accept Jesus, you will be more socially acceptable. If you accept Jesus, you will be like the Ken and Barbie that are on the stage, on the church sign, and in all of our marketing. If you accept Jesus, you will be successful. Now we've hit the real heart of American enterprise. Now, in this room, we have men who have slept on the street and we have men that have only ever spoken with men who slept on the street in this room. That's just what happens when you have this number of people here. So I'm going to ask some of my streetwise brothers to help me out here for a minute. Not going to call anybody out. I'm just saying it's okay to be vocal in church and some of you already know that. If you start off with a body in Judea and that body is turned into an enterprise, let me say it this way, a business, in 21st century America, what do we call a body that is a business? What do we call somebody who uses their body as business? A prostitute. How interesting that the 17th chapter of Revelation, the 18th chapter of Revelation, and the 19th chapter of Revelation present the battle of all battles 
is really being between a bride who has kept herself pure and a prostitute who prostituted herself with idolatry. Now we're beginning to see why there's a spiritual migration. Can I ask you something while we got our smallest children out of the room? Is it not true that some of the same acts occur with brides and with prostitutes? Of course it is. But there's an entirely different motivation. With your spouse, you took an oath that said for richer or poorer. In other words, it's not for secondary gain. It's for a selfless love that is lifelong. But if you turn that into a business transaction, then its intimacy comes at a price. Oh, pastor, how could you drag us into such carnal things? I need you to think about this for a second. If we only serve Jesus, if he heals us, if we only serve Jesus, if he heals our finances, if you'll only serve Jesus, if your son gets off of drugs, if you'll only serve Jesus, if he makes your business successful, are you a bride or a prostitute? Boy, that's a stark truth, isn't it? It's amazing how quiet it became in here. So we see that what started as a body in Judea and moved to a philosophy among the Greeks and an institution in Rome and an empire in medieval Europe and an educational system in early America and entertainment in mid-America has now become a prostitute in the 21st century. I don't believe this is God's will for us. How can we examine our motives? Let's turn to 1 Chronicles 28, 9 through 10. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. See, The prostitute says, if you will continue to bless me, I'll continue to pretend to love you. Of course, what they really love are the blessings, not the one that they've come from. But the bride, the bride has in her heart, I love you because of who you are. And if you don't have a job today, and if you don't have health today, If you don't have money today, I still love you for who you are. I love Jesus for who he is. I love him for what he's already done. And if he never did another thing, I wouldn't love him any less. But then I don't have a temporary commitment to him. I would never move a revival meeting for a super bowl party but look around you saints revelation spoke of a day that a prostitute would masquerade herself as a bride and all of heaven rejoiced when she was exposed fallen 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 is babylon heaven could not wait for what was on earth that he called a cup of abominations to be exposed for what it was Because somewhere beneath all of that muck, all of that idolatry, and all of that secondary gain, there was a pure remnant of people that simply loved God for His character, 
revealed in the man Jesus Christ. And they love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Turn with me to Proverbs 16, 2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. How do we know when we worship the Lord? How do we know when we're praying? How do we know when we're reading the Word? Are we doing it out of an affection for Him? Are we doing it hoping to get something? Anybody in here ever fasted with wrong motives? I have. In the ninth day of a fast, I was building a fence. And uh, when I was younger and stronger, that was a lot easier to do. And um, I was fasting for what I thought was a pure motive. My father had cancer and I wanted to see him healed. And I had chubby checkered that scripture. I had done the twist until my hunger strike was meant to impress God. And he spoke to me in the middle of it. He said, I will not be manipulated by you. So I went and ate something. It was a glorious croissant. Al, you with me back there? It's about 40 ounces of milk. You know what? My father lived another 25 years. God is not interested in you serving him for secondary gain. You know what kind of fast he would have honored? Lord, I can't handle these pressures. I love you and I'm concerned for the injustice in my brother and I want to spend that time worshiping you. I want to show you where my heart really is. He would have honored that, but don't they look exactly the same from the outside perspective? You can't tell the difference between religion and relationship to save your life unless you're the man. But the Holy Ghost will show you. See, I thought when I was studying the book of Revelation that the horror of Babylon and the righteous bride of Christ were such a gulf apart that never should the two meet and never could they be intertwined. And I realized I had a little bit of both in me sometimes. I love the Lord and I love the things that he does for me. And they creep into my motivations if I'm not careful. We need to examine our motivations. Do you serve the Lord because of what He will do for you or do you serve Him because of what He's already done? See, here's the difference. If you serve the Lord because of what He's already done, you are grateful. If you only serve the Lord for what He will do, you know what you are? Angry and spiteful until He's done it because you've turned Him into your cosmic genie, your Coke machine in the sky who delivers orders for you. Say, but it's worked some so far. He is so merciful. Is there a difference between the way Judah at nearly 17 years old asked for food and the way Gideon Hall asked for food? Of course there is. A good father knows that they both need it, but he would expect one son to ask in a certain way with a certain heart and the other he would forgive for being an infant still in his diapers. Do y'all want to grow in Christ? Oh, man, do I want to grow in Christ. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 5. Say there when you're there. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. 
Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive, what's it say? His praise from God. Whose praise? Ours. His praise from God. Paul was anticipating a bride of Christ that loved him so much that her actions were motivated by something pure, something sincere, not secondary gain. So he could say, you can reserve judgment of each other. There'll be a day when your motives will be exposed and what will you receive? Praise. He was not anticipating a bride who would be punished like a prostitute. He was anticipating a bride who had kept herself pure and she served God out of a pure devotion, not out of a need for secondary gain. Is the scripture true in Matthew 6.33? You know, how else could you explain two high school kids, neither of whom finished at Slow Learners University? I majored in Chick-fil-A. Oh, you're upset over SLU. It's Louisiana. What do you want to wear? 50th and everything. I majored in Chick-fil-A. What I was most known for in high school are things that I can't say now because it's shameful to speak about things done in darkness. How else do you explain where God has taken me from too? But if he still had me in a one-bedroom flat where we were praying for our physical safety at night, I wouldn't love him any less. How does the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity preach in India? I'll be there Wednesday night. How does it preach there? You know what's shocking? There's such a satanic power behind it, it preaches very well. It turns out poor people want to get rich too. It turns out that when men stand and say, this is what God wants for you, and if you don't have it, it's because you're not living God's way. And if you'll just live God's way, then you'll get all of this behind door number seven. Turns out people flock to it in droves. But then what happens the first time they pray for a relative and they die? What happens the first time they get fired for their faith rather than promoted to health, wealth, and prosperity? What happens? Does it matter how we present the gospel? Does it matter what our motives are? God weighs them, saints. He cares. You know, I want him to be proud of me. Do you want him to be proud of you? I watched an advertisement for a university, not a university, that's not right, a ministerial program. It was on Facebook yesterday. And... They promised that God would take you from nowhere and make you a success in business. And look, he did it for me, he'll do it for you. And what can I tell you, saints? Do it. It was the message. And I realized how dangerously close the truth is to this lie. The truth is he does take David from the pasture and he does put him in the palace and he kills Philistines all along the way. And if the only reason that David had ever served God was to get to the palace, then it wouldn't have been serving God at all. Can y'all hear the difference in those statements? Let's talk body for a minute. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 speaks of the body of Christ. This is where this thing began, as a body. 
Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. We're supposed to be members connected in the body. We're supposed to be an interactive fellowship of believers. That's how this began. You never hear Jesus stand up and say, I fed you 5,000 fish today, and if you follow me tomorrow, I promise a return of 7,000 fish. He never promised that. And yet, it's an accepted fundraising practice of the church now on every Christian station, every radio station, and nearly every large ministry to promise people a return on their sacrificial offering to God. It's not really sacrificial if you're promised to return, is it? But we know about God that when we sacrifice, He does entrust us with more, don't we? Do you see how... So what's the difference then? All right, men, I'm going to hurt your feelings here for a minute. How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you're married. I'm only talking to you married men. If this applies to you single men, I expect to see you at the altar. So you... You squeeze up next to your honey, right? Throw your arm around her. You tell her how pretty she looks today. Kind of stroking your fingers through her hair. Say, oh, honey, does your back hurt? And you just gently kind of want to massage her shoulders only because you love the character of God that's in the woman. You got no other thought in your mind. Now, how does that get laughter on a Sunday morning? I know how it gets laughter on a Sunday morning. I know. I'm not trying to be crass and I'm certainly not trying to be carnal while I'm preaching. I'm trying to tell you that only the Word of God is capable of separating the motives of our heart. And ultimately, our love for Jesus is not pure if it is manipulative. Do you pray harder when you're in trouble? Of course you do. Don't lie. Of course you do. But that reveals something about our heart, doesn't it? I'm not here preaching to people that I think are a prostitute. That's not it at all. I'm preaching to people who are trying to walk as a pure virgin bride among a land that has accepted prostitution as if it were the bride. And I want you to be able to see the distinctions because God is moving in my heart that the refining process must increase. Can y'all say amen to that? Okay, let's move from the body to the philosophy. Colossians 2.8. Say there when you're there. A body in Judea, a philosophy. By the time it reached Corinth, uh, not Corinth, the Greeks. And now we're reading in the book of Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This word basic principles of this world is one Greek word, that whole phrase. It's a stoikia. And it means the basic building blocks of the corrupted world. You know where this comes out? Things like, well, in the business world, it's dog eat dog. No, you just identified a basic building block of lost society. What happens when the church begins to adopt those principles, though? 
you're mad that a church has opened across the street because they might steal sheep. Now we compete just like businesses do. You have a running feud. Let's just say a Baptist church and Church of Christ could be anywhere, but I happen to be thinking of Sugarland who are spending more money every year to outdo each other's steeple because, after all, that's what's important. What happens? How's that any different than men competing to have their name on the tallest building? Do you see how subtle these are? But it starts off just, if we have a steeple that's high enough, everyone will be able to see it and they'll come to our services and we want to impact them for Christ. But that's not where it finishes. In the leadership meeting today, we're going to talk about Isaac and Ishmael principles because it's closely related. I don't want to be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I want you to notice the next time someone is speaking to you, the next time somebody is preaching, are they selling their success or are they selling the character of God? Are they telling you that you too can be as charming and as wonderful as the man on the stage with the gleaming smile? Are they inviting you to be crucified like Christ Jesus? I'm pretty sick of the champion gospel, to be honest. I don't find it turns out real spiritual champions, but it is excellent at turning out prostitutes. When we move from the body to philosophy to the institution, this brought to a scripture, uh, a mind to a, my mind to a scripture. You know, many of us grew up in institutions and they're not all bad. The church of Ephesus in Revelation 2 verse 4 was given a warning. Prior to this warning, the previous three verses are about a praise for them. They had done so many things well. And he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And then they get a stark warning Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Think about the migration, friends. The migration went from an interactive body that was connected and God dwelt in to more of an intellectual ascent to philosophy to finally an institution built on the right ideals, but in danger of losing God's presence altogether. Have you never seen that? Drive around. It's such a subtle thing. Are all institutions wrong? Of course not. This one, the church at Ephesus, after some 70 years, was combating the work of the devil but they were in danger of losing their first love while they did it. And they were warned. You mean they could be doing the right work even and the motive of their heart be fading? Apparently so. Do you not see a correlation between warnings in the first century and warnings in the 21st century that are needed? You know what the defense all of the time for the champion gospel is, but they do good things. Well, let's apply that test to the Mormons. Do they do good things? In the daylight, they do. How about the Jehovah's Witness? They've got great marketing. You know, when, 
When you Google the term business and gospel, the first nine results have to do with gospel business associations, and the tenth result under Google is a book on how to apply biblical principles to your business. And when you read the introduction, you find out that's just window dressing. It's actually the other way around. It's how to apply business principles to your Bible. It calls, it calls evangelism a marketing campaign. And you know what? Nobody sees anything wrong with it. And do you know how they advertise the book? It can be read in an hour and is easily digestible. Is this what we want? An easily digestible hour. It's not what you want, and I know that. But did you ever think we would get to a day where an hour and a half was a long sermon? An hour was a long sermon? Anything over 29 minutes? A long sermon? What's happening? The bride of Christ needs to stand up. We need to say no. We love the excellency of his character and we won't trade it for Philistines. When we think empire, when you think of medieval Europe and the church in that day, look at Colossians 2. We're going to see verse 20. We're going to go all the way through 3.1 with this one. Say there when you're there. In Colossians 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Could anything define the Middle Ages more than that? Reduce the gospel to eat Jesus Don't touch this. Don't marry. Don't do that. But they lack value. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The devil was crafty, saints. He moved the body into a philosophy and into an institution and into an empire. And then after a renewal, we get to the place in America in the early part of our little house on the prairie days and the church became an educational institution. How many teachers do I have in the bunch? More than a few. How could education be wrong? Well, Ecclesiastes 12.12 says... Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and of study it wearies the body. And the 13th verse goes on to warn Solomon. Now all this has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What is an educational system without a heart transformation? It's a man who knows all the right things to say. But none of them are found in their lives. We can write books about Jesus until the cows come home. Those of you that went to Romania with me actually know what that means. You can do it all day long. 
But if it doesn't result in a fear of God and a transformation of your heart, then we're still off base. Well, what about entertainment? What could be wrong with the entertainment gospel? I mean, the gospel's not supposed to be boring, right? In Judges 16, 25, I want you to consider this and marvel at the irony in this. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. What are you talking about, pastor? You've lost your mind. You're mixing metaphors. Catch this. If we need a holy man of God on the stage as our champion and our hero to entertain us, who does that place us as in the story? The Philistines that he's waiting to bring the entire system down on their heads. See, when we raise up for ourselves champion entertainers rather than correcting Scripture training pastors, we become like the Philistines marveling at the things of God excited, wanting to make sport of them. And God wants to cause that system to crash down on our heads because it's not of Him. Does attendance drop in XYZ church if the great man who founded the great building is not there? You know, David Wilkerson founded Times Square Church in Manhattan. And I admire him. A lot of people don't like him, but, you know, a lot of people don't like a lot of things. I think he had a heart after God. I think he was broken by the sin of America and moved by the righteousness of Christ. You know, he refused to announce the speaking schedule of the church because he found out that if he was not speaking, less people came and he thought it was idolatry. And so he refused to let it happen. Are you coming to meet with David Wilkerson? Are you coming to meet with the presence of God? Do you see how secondary gain creeps in? I once had a relative that missed a service and they thought they were complimenting me. They said it was because I wasn't preaching. I said, so you've been coming all of this time to impress me? I'm not impressed. Consequently, they showed me. They stopped coming even when I'm preaching. But it does reveal a secondary gain issue, doesn't it? If your motives are tried, do you want to be found true? Because I want to be found true with all of my heart. Let's do this. Let's look at Isaiah together. Say there when you're there. Look at some of the things that we can measure from the Word, turn away from, and then rejoice that we're walking in righteousness because we do it. We're in the first chapter of Isaiah. Boy, this is eye-opening, this passage. It starts in verse 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. This is the most interesting scripture. How could an assembly of God's people be evil? And how could he say stop bringing sacrifices? Who asked them to bring sacrifices in the first place? He did. Do you mean you can be doing a right thing? 
and have a wrong motive and God call it meaningless? Yes. He called their assemblies evil. And you know what their assembly had been called? Quahal Yahweh, the assembly of God. The church in the wilderness, the church of God, Paul said to Corinth. Their assembly had been one organized by God. And here he calls it evil. Why? Because they're not really doing the right things out of a pure heart. They still hate each other. They're still idolatrous. They're not actually living out the gospel. They're going through a kind of rote ritual. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Whose appointed feast? Did not God himself appoint the feast? But they became the work of men rather than God. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You know, Matthew and I were talking shop earlier about worship leaders. Two men can stand on a stage. They could be equally proficient. They could sing gloriously. They could have the same enthusiasm. And maybe the crowd reacts exactly the same to both men. And one of them be bringing an acceptable offering to God because that is sincerely why he's doing it is to honor the character of God. And the other man be doing it because he enjoys the response of the people. And you know, the only person that would know, the man. I would be the only one who would know in God. This is why Paul said, yeah, don't judge these things before the appointed time. God will judge the motives of each man's heart and he will receive his Praise. Paul assumed the best motive to the Philippian church. He said, well, even if the gospel is being preached out of false motives, at least it's being preached. And that sounds so tolerant. It's not tolerant. You know what it is? It's completely acceptance of the day that God will judge the great prostitute. That's good for everybody except who? The great prostitute. Is not the gospel founded on women like Mary Magdalene coming to Christ and not being defined as a demon-possessed prostitute, but being defined as a faithful, loyal, loving follower of Christ? He takes prostitutes and turns them into pure brides. It's what he does. There's not a single one of us that started with pure motives. Not a single one of us that had the slightest bit of faithfulness inside of us. Not one of us. Isaiah makes that point going forward. He says, stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Oh, thanks, Isaiah. Is it it really that simple? What happens when your very heart has been deceived? We need the washing of the Holy Spirit and the enlightening of His Word so that we rightly see our own motives because we read the proverb that said all a man's ways seem right to him. (laughs) You know, when, when you think about it, it's a lot easier to just go and hear that God wants you blessed, isn't it? 
It's easier to preach it to. And this is what we do. We gravitate towards what is easiest. The truth is about the gospel, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, and he's worth it. Is there anybody that believes Jesus is worth it? Is he worth dredging the depths of your heart, looking to root out anything that's wrong? Does he deserve what Solomon called wholehearted devotion? See, he deserves it. Let me ask you, do you want the same kind of love from your spouse as you give your spouse? Let me just be honest about the Stevens household here for a minute. That means Jennifer's going to turn red. and I get mad when she doesn't do things I think she should do. I know, man, I see you looking at me with disapproval. You're shocked. But if I don't do the things that she thinks that I should do, I think there should be mercy for that. They're falling out in the sound booth back there. (laughs) And I found out that this trait is not unique to the Stevens home. And I'm not diffusing responsibility here. I'm not telling you because it's not unique to the Stevens home that somehow it's more acceptable. That's what we like to do with sin. We like to say it's all of our sin. No, this one's ours very personally. Jesus is entirely different than that. Romans 5.8 teaches us that while we were sinners, enemies of God, It was then that he demonstrated his love for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to do something that expressed love to him. He didn't have secondary gain issues. You know what that ought to make you want to do? Give him everything you have and more. Doesn't it? Okay, guys. And I'm just preaching at you guys for a few minutes. When the selfishness of your heart's been revealed and your wife was amazing as mine is, how does that make you feel? When you have been selfish and they have been noble, how does it make you feel? I'm giving you a chance to get some brownie points here, guys. How does it make you feel? Horrible is one place to start. Does she get anything out of your horrible feelings? If she does, she's a sadist. She needs to get regenerated herself. Does feeling horrible do anything for her? So you know what would be better than feeling horrible? Which I admit, Joel, I do. JJ, I do. The only two honest men in the room. Those of you that have been married the longest are sitting the quietest. You've been here before and you don't want to incriminate yourself. You know what's better than feeling horrible? Feeling ingratiated. Wanting to reciprocate. 
Jesus did not die for us while we were sinners so that we could feel horrible. Religion does that to you so that you will serve religion. And it promises to alleviate the horrible feeling by giving money to the church or eating crackers. What Jesus actually did, though, was he did this for us so that we would feel ingratiated and want to give him our life. He did it to change the very motivations of our heart from being an external threat of punishment to being an internal desire to please the Lord. He removes from us a heart of stone and He puts in us a heart of flesh with His Spirit to keep His decrees. He puts in us a desire to keep His decrees. Turn with me to Exodus 34 and verse 15. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. What bearing on earth could that have? Understand that our culture has already prostituted itself. We need to not make a treaty with wrong culture. We need to not say, well, we're in America and in America football reigns on Sunday. Because you've dethroned Christ and made yourself a prostitute to do it. We need to not give in to social pressure that is sin. Not all social concerns are sin. And I'm not saying all football games are sin. I'm not saying all Super Bowl parties are sin. If we didn't have a revival meeting and you had a Super Bowl party, I'd come to your house and bring dip and talk to you about Jesus while you stared at the screen. Okay? But to cancel revival meetings, how is that not prostituting ourselves? I say that one of the subtle ways the devil has tricked the church is by false treaties. Numbers 15.39 taught us how to war against it. You will have these tassels to look at. So you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. God wanted us to keep His Word in front of us because His Word would judge the attitudes and thoughts of our heart. His Word would help us delineate between what we wanted and what God wanted. And sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're not. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to choose between two things that feel right? And yet it's not possible when they're in opposite directions. The Word of God will separate it out for us. Are you under the covering of the... A bride is covered. She's covered in the commands of God. They control her life. She lives under the shadow of her husband. A prostitute is free to roam and only returns to the covering when they want something. If you had to chart your spiritual life, would it be under the covering or would it be like on a tether, running as far as your tether could stretch and coming back when you ran out of food and water? Proverbs 6, verse 25 is one of our last on the subject. Then we're going to pick it up at a positive note. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty 
or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can you imagine reducing Jesus to simply what he could give you? To the house he could give you, to the car he could give you. That takes so much away from him. You know what? It puts him on a level playing field with the devil when you think about it because the devil could give you all of those things too. So why not go serve him? Why is it that we serve Jesus and war against the devil instead of serving the devil and warring against Jesus? If it's just who can give you the most in this life, if that's what we've reduced it to, do you see what road that goes down? Who promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world? He's going to get them from his father. He's going to get a pure bride with it. But Satan offered him a shortcut. The path between prostitute and bride is just what Barna said it was. They're incremental changes over a long period of time that are imperceivable at first until you look backwards. So the devil keeps us from reflecting. I say this morning's a good morning to reflect. I will not reduce Jesus to a loaf of bread. Does that mean that he doesn't rain down manna for me? Of course he does. I've been healed more times than I can count. Just in the last three weeks, I've seen more financial miracles than I could actually explain would scare you. I'm going to India on faith and fumes. And I'll return the richest man on the planet. And I know that because I've been many times before and I know how our king works. But that's not why I go to India. I go to India because I fell in love with the character of the Christ and I want them to love him too. It's a wrong perspective to love only what Jesus does for you and advertise what Jesus has done for you as a way for other people to love him too. In Romans 12, 11... We're going to hit a few characteristics of a wife. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. One way to identify the subtleties of the prostitute creeping up on you is you're happy with Jesus when he's blessing you, but you are not happy with Jesus when you're in trials. See, a real faithful wife keeps her spiritual fervor. She loves Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Even if Monday's the hardest day for her, she still loves him and expresses that. I think Haley prophesied about that today. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. These are ways that we show ourselves to be a faithful wife. We bless those who persecute us. We bless and we do not curse. You know why? Because we honor the character of our husband, the Christ. So, but it's not what they deserve. <laughs> 
What difference does that make? It's his character we're representing. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. We empathize with people the way he empathized with us. We live in harmony with one another. We're not proud. We're willing to associate with people of low position and we refuse temptations to become conceited. Why? Because that's the character he taught us. Have you noticed that the richest, most successful of the pastorate have a tiny circle of people that they associate with? How does that work? Can you imagine Jesus living in a gated community with security guards keeping you from knocking on his door? Can any of you honestly say you can imagine that? Or driving in a bulletproof, uh, I think the thing's called the beast. Yeah? Can you imagine that? But I'm sure it was just out of a desire to be safe, you know? What could be wrong with that? Guys, resistance to doing the things of God means that we're moving in the right direction. Pain in doing the things of God means that we're experiencing growth. Our perseverance is an indication of our maturity and our faithfulness. Are you persevering as the bride of Christ? Come on, church. Are you persevering as the bride of Christ? Let's turn to Proverbs 31. This is our last scripture today. It's never in my life been applied quite like this. You know, the Lord saves people from every possible background. And I love it. Sin is sin. It all stinks. And the, what counts is the new creation in Christ. I probably, I know to my European friends, I seem barbaric. I mean, we like to cook our meat over fire. The bigger the truck, the higher the lift, the more horsepower, obviously, is better. Uh, Most of the time, I carry a gun because I like them and not much other reason. And in most rooms of the house, we have guns that we clean and that we like, and they're heirlooms. I got one when I was 13 that I can't wait for my sons to get. And it's difficult for people to grasp that who come from other places. I I understand that. It was difficult for me to wrap my mind around the idea that I wanted to be a wife of noble character. McLevin, you following me back there? It's a difficult concept. I would not normally... I preach about warrior Jesus all of the time. I preach about masculine holiness. Here comes the sensitive side. Proverbs 31 and verse 10. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. What if this was the Spirit of Christ speaking about the bride of Christ today? Where is my bride? I value her more than rubies. And I don't see her anywhere, although there are churches on every corner. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Can Jesus place his full confidence in you? When he entrusts you with his power, can he be confident that you use his name well? 
She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. Do people speak better of Jesus because of you or worse of Jesus because of you? The wife of noble character is a tough test to pass, but all of you husbands are happy applying it to your bride. And we are the bride of Christ. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. Why? Why would she do that? Because she loves her husband and she wants to help provide for the household. Why do you work for Jesus? Because I love him and I want to help provide for God's people. Are you following me here? Let's skip down to the last of the verses. Verse 28. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Are we turning out disciples that are blessed for their relationship with us and can Jesus praise us for it? Or are we only turning out success stories that could be infomercials on how to be healthy, wealthy, and successful. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Could that be said about your devotion to Christ? Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The fear of our king and the respect for his character is going to result in praise or the lack of it's going to result in disdain on that day. How many of you have read the last four chapters of the book of Revelation? The climax of human history is when the prostitute falls and the bride arises. And we have the opportunity to do it right now. Give her her reward. She has earned it. And let her works bring her praise at the city gate. The king of the universe is going to praise his bride at the separation of sheep and goats in front of the entire world. And the separation between those two things might be as small as the veiled motive of a heart. Yeah. Could we stand our feet? Revelation 19.8 is what we're shooting for. When the king of kings looks at us, I want us to be arrayed in fine linen, bright and clean. It was given her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. A lot of people go feed the hungry these days. A lot of people build houses and it seems that it's popular to care about orphans. But how many are doing it out of a motive to glorify the character of God. And how many are doing it out of a motive to look good in the eyes of men? I'm not interested with anybody outside of this room this morning because God brought you here. This is a chance for us to be arrayed in something that's beautiful before the Lord. And you might not even have to adjust an action. It may just have to be the motive of our hearts. So here's a great test. If everybody spits on you, And if God shows you no immediate reward, is it still worth doing for the greatness of his name? And if the answer is yes, it's fine linen. If the answer is no, then we identified a false motive. Come on, church. Amen.